For uh, what, what kind of opening is that, eh, Riley? What is that? That's what he... It was my drum solo. It sounded like the soundtrack to Whiplash. It was my drum uh, solo opening of the weird, and I'd like for you to replace the uh, music that just finished with that moving forward. Thank you. Well, it's good to have a wish, but that one's not coming true. Riley, how are you tonight? I'm good. I have to say that I, we're immersed right now in the thickness of autumn, and I couldn't be happier. I love this time of year, and it's rainy and wet here today. It's miserable, and I still fucking love it. But still very warm, which I'm enjoying. I'm kind of over it, actually. I'm kind of ready for summer to go to bed. Okay. Well, you're over a lot of things. Riley, this is a special episode that we have tonight. I'm so excited. We have a very special guest that I've been trying to get on our show for several months, uh, years, actually. I was working on this before the show even existed. Mm -hmm. Are you ready? I'm always ready. Should we just dive right into it? Please dive right in. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Margot McDonald is a multi-award-winning actor and playwright. Her solo show, The Elephant Girls, based on the true story of an all-female gang that terrorized London for over 100 years has toured both nationally in Canada and internationally in England, Scotland, and Ireland over the past six years. Her most recent show, Dressed as People, a triptych of uncanny abduction, a collaboration with Canadian speculative fiction and horror writers Kelly Robson, Amal El Motar, and A.M. Della Monica, premiered online in 2021 and will begin touring live and in person in 2022. Margot has also worked as a tour guide, researcher, and paranormal consultant for The Haunted Walk, offering ghost tours and paranormal adventures since 2001. She was the co-creator and host of The Haunting at Black Creek, an immersive paranormal investigation experience. Margot has studied an introduction to parapsychology with the University of Edinburgh and is a member of both the Society for Psychical Research and Britain's esteemed ghost club. If you're interested in learning more about The Haunted Walk, if you're visiting Canada, and we'll, I'll ask this question as soon as I throw to her. Uh, you can go to www.hauntedwalk.com. Her website is www.perryrepost, that's R-I-P-O-S-T-E dot C-A. And you can also search for Margot on Instagram and Twitter at Margot underscore thespian. Ladies and gentlemen, Margot McDonald. Hi. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, how did I butcher anything in that in that intro? No, you did it all right. Thank you so much for such a psychical such a was long right introduction. Psychical is right. I had no idea that you did any of that. No, we know each other as performers, so the the other side of my career is uh, is hidden in mystery God, to you. I never knew. You know what I was just thinking too. The Elephant Girls, like the true foundations of your story, is almost a tale for the weird as well. Oh, absolutely. There's not much mystery to it, though. I mean, we know who they were, we know what they did, and pretty much why they did it. But it's still a great story if you like uh, gangster stories. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'll have to find out more about that. Maybe we can do an episode about it. Sure. Yeah, I, I would be fascinated. Do you, Dad? 
I would love that. I would any opportunity to get Margot on, I'll take. And folks, just so you know, Margot uh, has performed both with Riley and I in the past. We were old friends with Margot, and mm-hmm. we're very excited, uh, Margot, to have you on the show and uh, and to hear your story. I know a little bit about what you're going to be talking about tonight, and I am very genuinely excited uh, to hear your tale. Yeah, absolutely, me as well. Well, I'm a I'm a longtime fan of the show. I've listened since the very first episode was dropped, and I I love it. Thank Partly you. because it's getting to spend time with the two of you, who I never get to see anymore. We live in different cities now, and you know, pandemic. Mm-hmm. But um, also because the subject matter, as you can tell from the bio, is near and dear to my heart. So I love it when you do stories that I've never heard of, or I find out more about the stories from your research that I didn't know before. So that's, that's brilliant. So thank you for this podcast, because I love well, thank it. Thank you. That's lovely. Actually, I'm the, I'm the same way about it. Like whenever Dan drops a story that I'm just really intrigued by, I just sit here spellbound. And it's like being around a campfire, listening to a story going, wow, this is really good. Yeah, there's nothing better. It's a lot of fun riding, being color on the shows when you're not presenting because of the stories are, and I know, know most of them, right? As I've mentioned before. I'm not, I mean, certainly there's some that I knew about, but like the Zodiac Killer or something like that. But yeah, it's fun. It's these, these st- stories are so much fun. And I remember Marco too. I think you were my entryway into working with the Haunted Walk all those years ago. Yeah, that's right. That was a right. short, fun, I think I worked for a couple of years in an acting capacity, not in a tour guide capacity, but that was a lot of fun indeed. And hearing your stories. I went on one of your tours. Oh, I did. thank you. Yes. You were our bonus content for our Halloween tours. <laughs> oh, is right. that what that was? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, brilliant. I would scare people in yep. the old Ottawa jail. I remember you speaking about that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, Margot, what is the story? Because I actually don't know. All right. I'm rubbing my hands in glee that I get to share this story. I've shared it before, but never in long form like this, never in such detail. So I'm excited to be able to uh, monopolize your time (laughs) by sharing this story with you. Now, this is actually a story that is connected to my family. So I knew about it from childhood. And it is because it involves my great uncle, who is on my mother's side of the family. And he worked uh, for the newspaper, the Halifax Herald, way back in 1922, when this story took place and went as an investigator for it. This story was described at the time in 1922 by the Toronto Star as the most weird, creepy and spooky mystery ever experienced in the maritime provinces of Canada. Oh, this is the fire spook of Caledonia Mills, Nova Scotia. Oh, a fire spook. The fire spook. I've never heard of a fire spook. Okay, a it's first. guys tale. Amen. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, I first heard about it from my family. I'm the youngest of seven. So, of course, all my older siblings were always trying to uh, scare me with various stories. But actually, I just fell in love with ghost stories. And then I read about it as a teenager Around the same time, I was in Nova Scotia visiting my grandmother, who uh, has since passed, but she was married uh, to this great uncle's brother. So my great uncle Harold's brother, Charles, was my grandfather. And I asked my grandmother, do you remember the story, great uncle Harold going to investigate this poltergeist in Caledonia Mills? Can you tell me anything about it? And she wouldn't really talk about it. All she would say was, 
Poor Harold. He should never have gone into that house. He was never the same again. No. Yes. Yes. Okay, I'm totally hooked. Yay, I did it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me give you a bit of background. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about Caledonia Mills. It's in Antigonish County in Nova Scotia. It's not far from the land break for Cape Breton on the east coast of Canada. It's a very small community back in the day. I think it is even now. It was mostly Scottish farmers or the descendants of Scottish farmers. Mm-hmm. Now, the story takes place at the McDonald homestead. And I should clarify right away that my family's role is not connected to the McDonald's. They're actually no relation to me. It is through the investigator that my family connection And, and they lies. weren't related at some, there was no relation between them that you are aware of? Not that I'm aware of. The thing is, the McDonald's are, you know, we're all descended from the same guy. And a large clan, too. A very yeah, large clan. Huge clan. So there's <laughs> there's no uh, direct connection, let's put it that way. Right. Um, but yes, the McDonald farmstead, which stood in a very remote corner of this remote community. It was a super rough life. They had many hardships mm-hmm. and uh, some very strong personalities involved. And and being where they were, very much not with the times, right? In terms of technology, access to technology, and maybe some of the comforts that people living in bigger city centers or towns would have had. Yeah, that's absolutely right. They didn't. The McDonald's didn't even have a telephone. Their right. the nearest telephone was their neighbors, as you'll you'll hear about them uh, soon in the story, the McGillivries, who lived, uh, you know, at least a mile away, and you know they they didn't have a radio all these sorts of things. Now, of course, being this small Scottish farming community, there was a lot of belief in the uh, supernatural. It's just a natural Mm -hmm. part of the Gaelic lifestyle Mm -hmm. um, and still is. But just having that belief floating around in the air is not enough to explain what happened at their farmstead in the winter and early spring of 1922. Oh, I love this. Before we get into the story, I'm going to introduce the family and give you some of the background of some of the uh, some of the family members because it does become important later when we talk about the theories. Okay. Because I've listened to the show, I've created a theory section for the end of the story. <laughs> so here's the family. It's Alexander and Janet McDonald, a married couple who are running the farm in Caledonia Mills. They adopted a daughter because they had no children of their own. The daughter was Mary Ellen. She was about two years old, and she was about 15 by the time the events you're going to hear about today took place. Okay, so there's an adolescent girl. Well, Oh, you're already on it. You're already on it. <laughs> Hold that thought. Okay. Hold that thought. Okay. That yes, you hear the word poltergeist and you hear there's an adolescent girl. Of course, we're yeah. immediately going to make that leap. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Now, before the events of the story, Alexander's brother, Andrew, often came and stayed in the home. But he was the kind of man, it was said, who would work only long enough to get enough money to buy more alcohol, and then he would stop working and just drink alcohol for as long as the money lasted. So he would stay with the McDonald's while he wasn't working, and he would cause such upset to Janet and Alexander that eventually they just became fed up with him and his drunken antics. And they kicked him out of their house for the final time. It was described as a wet and cold and stormy evening in November of 1903. But here's the important part. As he left the house, he turned back and he cursed them in Gaelic, Mm -hmm. saying, 
You'll be driven out on the dung heap on a far worse night than this before long. Okay. And that carries a lot of weight, especially the fact that it was spoken in Gaelic. That's right, amongst the Scots and the descendants of the Scots, um, Gaelic becomes almost a magical language, yeah. which carries more weight than, than the English you were forced to learn, right? So, uh, so you're right. Now, another person I need to tell you about before we get going with the story is Mary Cameron, who was Janet's mother. Now, she was very old and very senile. And unfortunately, she also suffered from terrible spells where she would rave and scream and there was no controlling her when she got like that. She lived with the family. Janet arranged for her to get out of the care home that she was in because she was being treated very badly there and moved her in with them, but then quickly found that she herself could not really take care of her very well. She was just a really far gone, poor thing. Yeah, and it sounded like like the that home that she was living in, the Janet rescued her from was like awful, like horrific. Basically, so they would just do the bare minimum to keep you alive. Yeah, they kind of did that in most homes back in the I day. Think so. I mean, our research, yeah. I think, into a lot of the haunted asylums and places like that have really uncovered the conditions were not good. That's right. A lot of those places, as as you mentioned in, in one of your stories, for sure, they started out with great intentions, but then quickly became overpopulated, not enough staff, not enough money, and, you know, not enough care and attention. And, and uh, this, unfortunately, still happens even today. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me, too, my, so we took care of my grandmother within the last two years of her life, and she had very late-stage dementia. And my mom really wanted to keep her with us, but it became dangerous. It was really, really difficult. Yes, that's right. And that was, would have been the 1990s. At least we had good homes that we could eventually put her in where she was taken care of and loved and cared for by proper medical attendants. So it was, uh, I can't imagine being in her shoes, Janet's shoes, right? This horrible yeah, Janet. quandary that she was forced into. Absolutely. She saw the conditions her mother was in against Alexandra's wishes, she arranged to bring her back home and then just found how impossible it was to care for her. So you can imagine that the th- only the three people, this teenage daughter of theirs and the couple trying to run this whole farm and take care yeah. of this mm. poor woman. So it just got to be too much. And uh, Janet became just utterly exhausted and completely fed up. And during one of these violent episodes that the mother got into, Janet burst into her mother's room, stood at the end of her bed, and was heard by several people to yell, I hope the devil in hell comes and takes you before nine o'clock tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. At that exact moment, a little black dog that no one had ever seen before walked into the kitchen and from there made its way straight into Mary Cameron's bedroom, the mother's bedroom, and just stood there. Later on, no one knew where the dog went. They didn't even see it leave. so crazy. Well, especially when you know that the mother was found dead in her bed the very next morning. Oh, man. Margot, you tell me to shut up. I do it all the time. Yeah, exactly. But these aren't people that are going to spread fake stories. No. And in fact, they didn't spread this story Things, weird things started happening in their house 
very shortly after that, around 1910. But it wasn't until 1922 that any of their neighbors really knew all the strange stuff that was happening in their house. That's how private they were. But that story about her screaming at her mother, it just so happens that a neighbor had was there and kind of overheard it. And that's how it got spread, especially when the mother was found dead and everybody was like, mm, I wonder if Janet helped her along, but we'll get that. We'll get to I that later. I love it's in the how specific section. the curse was. By nine. So specific. By nine the next morning. And to me, that's kind of how you know that's really what she said, because in a way it makes no sense, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> then people in the in the those moments of extreme distress, you just say anything, you know? And she was just venting mm-hmm. her frustration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the weird. Yes, indeed. So as I mentioned, between 1910 and 1922, it seems like a lot of strange things did happen on the farm, but it wasn't until uh, Mary Ellen became kind of older school age and started trying to make friends at school that probably to, you know, try to make friends or scare her friends, she told some of the stories of things that were happening at their farm, and that's how the words started getting out. But it seems that the first kind of things to happen weren't the fire spook that we'll get to uh, in a moment, but actually strange things involving the cattle. Alexander MacDonald would notice that the cows would come loose after he had milked them. He would milk them, pin them back up, go into the house and come out and find that his cattle were wandering loose. He thought the pins in the locking system must have come loose, and so he drove them in harder. He drove in small spikes through the pins, but that didn't work either. The cows still came loose. He then tried fastening some wire and drove more spikes and even put uh, curved iron bars around the cows' necks. Hmm. They still got loose and the curved bars were found on the floor. He then tried using chains and ropes, stringing them over the beams in the barn that they were kept in. They still were found wandering loose. He said every time after milking the cows and returning to the house, he would come back only three or four minutes later and find them loose. This happened on and off for about two years or so, but all this time while that was happening, other strange things were happening too. Items from the house would often go missing and then be found in strange places, like really deep into their property along the property fence, but at the back of their property or up in the tops of trees and so on. But again, these weren't things that they were sharing with many neighbours. No, it wasn't until the fires started oh. that everybody knew just how weird things had gotten in the house. And just to, like, they're, they don't really have neighbors that are frequent, like, there aren't people around. They didn't even have any um, farmhands working right. with them. It's every once in a while, neighbors, uh, especially the McGillivries, would come over to help them if they needed uh, to, you know, bring in the wheat or whatever they were doing. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have any near neighbors. There wasn't, it wasn't like there were people around all the time. By that time, it was just the three of them. Mm-hmm. Wow. The first bit, um, the stuff up in the trees, the stuff going missing from the house, reminds me a bit of Skinwalker Ranch. That was the early yeah. manifestation at Skinwalker Ranch uh, was described as that, but it's probably not that virulent, I hope. Strangely, a lot of um, poltergeist phenomenon starts small like that. Um, you know, you go to look for your keys. They're not on the table where you left them. You think you were just absent-minded. You look all around and you find them in the freezer or back on the table exactly where you thought you'd left them and they weren't there when you looked mm. before. And so easy things to explain away in your own mind as being, well, it was just my imagination or I wasn't paying attention. But then those things might amp up and get weirder and weirder so that 
you're finding it more and more difficult to explain, and so on. So that seems to be how things were starting here, too. Brilliant. But then, mm. it was the winter of 1922, bitterly cold, extremely snowy, snowbanks up to your hips. It was Saturday, January 7th. They were all sitting around the dinner table in the kitchen, when suddenly Alexander noticed that the boards up above the stove, they seemed to have been burned. They thought, well, okay, it's above the stove. It assumed it must have had to do something with the, with the faulty stove pipe. So he cleaned it all out, replaced the boards, checked everything. It was fine. They all went to bed. In the middle of the night, they awoke to the smell of burning, looked all around and found that an upholstered chair in the kitchen and a lounge uh, chair just next to it both had a small fire in the center of the upholstery. They put those out, checked everything. Everything was fine. They slept through the night. And these were actual flames. It wasn't the aftermath, but they could see actual flames in these. The first thing they found when they found the boards, it was just the aftermath. Right. Like it had been burned and they hadn't noticed when it had happened, mm -hmm. but it was, they could see that it was recent. They just hadn't seen it burning. But these in the upholstery, actual like flames burning blackening the material at the edges. And there are actually photographs of some of these burns that you can check out as well. So the next night, they uh, this was the Sunday night now, there was more smoke and they found fires burning in several uh, spots in the house, on the kitchen ceiling, for example, put those out and then several other small fires broke out throughout the night. They managed to extinguish them all. They're just little poop, 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 like spontaneous they fires. Sleep. They were like on guard the whole no. night. They had to be because they didn't know where the fires were going to pop up next. And remember, this farmhouse would have been made entirely of oh, wood. Yeah. Um, and it's the middle of winter. So, you know, even though the, you're surrounded by snow, you don't have easy access to running water to try to put out the fires. They're kind of elderly themselves at this point, right? Yeah, they're not young people. They had adopted uh, Mary Ellen when they, I think, were already in their 40s or so. So they're like in their 50s. Right. Yeah. And hardworking farmers, so... I think being in your 50s is quite young. I mean, now it is. But if you had to... If, if you're in 1922 and had done nothing but farming your whole yeah. life, um, then I think you well, were probably a little worse for wear. Well, if you look at pictures of around yeah, of this course. time, they look like they're in their 80s. Our 80s. Yeah. yeah. So, the next night, Monday, no fires. Everything was fine. The next night, Tuesday, no fires. Everything was fine. They started to relax. They thought, okay, that was weird, but we replaced everything. It's fine. But then, on the afternoon of Wednesday, January 11th, 1922, Alexander went out to do some barn work, and he left Janet and Mary Ellen sitting in the kitchen near the stove, when suddenly a fire broke out on a board directly above them. So they're sitting right there. They saw it happen. They called for help. They pulled the board down. They threw it out of the house into the snowbank. Alexander came running. They looked all around. Nothing else was to be found. But half an hour later, another fire burned above the doorway in the kitchen. And then, one after the other, little fires sprang up all throughout the house. There was one upstairs, then one in the living room, on the wallpaper, in the bedroom, in the blinds, etc. These were all little spontaneous fires they could find no cause for and didn't see 
coming. They just suddenly burst out into small flames. By this time, the fires were coming so quickly and in so many places throughout the house that they couldn't put them all out with just the three of them. So Mary Ellen ran to their neighbours, the McGillivries, about a mile away on a very stormy night, and she brought back Dan and Leo McGillivray, brother uh, farmers, to help. They became key eyewitnesses to these strange events. For example, here's neighbour Leo McGillivray talking about what he experienced that night. We were in the house about half an hour when the whole house seemed to be strangely illuminated, just as sudden and bright as if a short circuit had occurred on a high-tension wire. The blaze seemed brighter in the parlour, so I made a dash for that room. The green window blind was enveloped in flames. I tore it off the window and managed to save about half of it. The flame was a pale blue. It was not hot, and it did not even singe the hair on the back of my hands nor my eyebrows. Five to ten minutes later, a blaze broke out on the wallpaper in the dining room, and then the next blaze was in a small shoebox that was directly across the room from the window blind. And blue, like a blue flame usually means like gas. Chemical. Like, somehow, like chemical, somehow. yeah. Yeah, yeah, chemical or gas. They, All the flames were described as blue or green, but uh, no chemical accelerant was ever mm-hmm. uh, identified. So, between 5 p.m. that evening and 8 a.m. the next day, approximately 38 separate fires broke out and were extinguished by the McDonald's and the McGillivray brothers. They broke out in all parts of the house, sometimes even at the same time, even in the drawers of dressers. They did find sometimes burning bits of cotton, but no one knew where they came from because they never had anything like that in the house. Even sopping wet bits of paper burst into flame. Oh, that's weird. By the time they finished putting out the fires, the entire house was completely soaked through and through, and about two inches of water was covering all the floors. All of the furniture and anything made of cloth or anything like that had been pulled out of the house and thrown onto the snow on the lawn. The McDonald's fled their home that night, and uh, in the middle of a winter storm, Mm -hmm. begging places to stay from their neighbours. Word spread quickly in the small community of Caledonia Mills, and of course, from there, eventually found its way to Halifax. Mm-hmm. It's a prophecy fulfilled. So when they left, the house didn't burn down behind them. No. All right. In fact, they left, uh, the fire seemed to have stopped, and everybody kind of breathed a sigh of relief. But of course, they couldn't stay there even if they wanted to. It was completely soaked in so much water. All their furniture was soaked with water and out in the snow and some of it burned. And it's not like it's not like a fire would burst out and the whole chair would be consumed and burned away. It was just these weird little, imagine the size of, a, of say, a quarter or, oh, or a loony really? if you're okay. in Canada. And they would kind of like, boof, and, you know, it would spread out from there. Mm-hmm. But it's not like the, the whole house or the, or the wall. But, of course, that was the fear. The strangest part is about the flames not being hot, but still burning like you would expect It makes you wonder what would have happened if they had just let them go. Yeah, would they have burned out or would it have burned down? But of course, they were poor. They couldn't afford to take that chance. No, of course not. Yeah. So the fact that they were poor, that the fact that they abandoned their home and their farm 
and their cattle, like in the middle of winter, someone took care of the cattle and McDonald came back almost every day to look after them, but they couldn't live there mm -hmm. anymore. Dan, can I interrupt? Is that your children? Yes. Oh my Lord. Well, they're doing their thing right above me and it's distracting me. So hold on a sec. Uh, just so you know, Aaron was performing a magic routine. Do you ever hear them, Margo, when you're listening to the podcast? Can you hear them in the background ever? Not, not really. Occasionally, there's like a little thump or sound, but it's nothing, nothing that has ever bothered me. Like, <laughs> you two will stop and say, what is that? Yeah. Like, da-da-da. And maybe it's because, Riley, maybe because you edited it I afterwards. I do, I take it out. Yeah. Yeah, that's why. It's the time they were playing laser tag outside the door like pew, 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 pew. that was my favorite yeah. <laughs> that was my favorite one if you're going to interrupt interrupt in a big way all right so word spreads to halifax and we're getting to the part where my great uncle makes his appearance into the story and we're going to focus from there on about his point of view and his experience mm -hmm. but i will say that the case was thoroughly examined in person by three very, uh, very respected people. So first of all, by the highly regarded and somewhat famous Nova Scotia detective, Peachy Carroll. Uh, yes, that was his nickname, Detective Peachy Carroll. <laughs> but also, I thought you'd like that, Riley. Also a parapsychological investigator up from New York, Dr. Walter F. Prince, who was with the American uh, Psychical Research Society, and my great uncle, who is an experienced journalist with the newspaper, the Halifax Herald, and his name was Harold B. Whidden. When Detective Carroll released his final report on February 14th, 1922, he concluded, quote, After what I consider a thorough investigation, and after spending two days and two nights in the house, I firmly believe that neither the fires nor other strange occurrences about the farm were the cause of human hands. Whoa. And this is a guy that, uh, he's a hard-boiled old policeman, no yeah. nonsense, really good at sort of figuring out the truth behind stories from what I understand from the story. Yeah. yeah. His name is Peachy. He's going to be, he's going to be pragmatic. He's going to have his feet on the ground. He was, you know, he's kind of one of those uh, bon ami, good, good cop guys, where he's like, oh, he's making jokes, but he was very hard on the criminals. He kind of like solved cases no one else thought could be solved and put a lot of people in jail. Right. But yeah, he, that's why he was called in because they, they trusted his opinion. They trusted his detecting skills. Uh, he went in thoroughly thinking that it would be easily debunked, that they would find uh, human agency immediately. Mm -hmm. And he came away thoroughly convinced. And he was teased a lot um, because of it. Uh, this hard-boiled detective coming back and saying, well, I don't think it was any human hand that did it. And, you know, standing with that as his final conclusion. But, you know, he just brushed it off and said, I know what I know. He said, I don't think anyone can have an opinion on this case unless they were there in that house and saw did he, what I saw. Did he experience, because he, like you said, he stayed there for a couple of days, right? Well, Dan. Oh, am I jumping? We'll, <laughs> we'll, yeah, we'll get into okay, that okay. in just a yeah. second. Uh, but yes, yes. Yeah, okay. I was, uh, that was the little prelude to this part. Good. 
So now we're going to start looking at things from the perspective of my great uncle. He published in, on March 21st of 1922 a pamphlet that is called A Statement of Fact or My Experiences at the MacDonald Homestead. This pamphlet primarily documented his experiences in the house uh, in and around March 10th of 1922, which were not written up in his newspaper article. The pamphlet was printed and circulated only amongst friends and family due to the, as he put it, sacred and personal nature of his experiences. He knew that he would be putting himself at uh, great professional risk by publishing mm -hmm. his personal experiences in the newspaper. So when he wrote his article, he stuck to the facts. He said uh, that he first heard about the strange goings-on in mid-January 1922 from a trusted friend. He thought it sounded really interesting, so he sent an inquiry to his newspaper, the Halifax Herald, who immediately sent him to the house uh, to interview the witnesses, and he published his first article about it. He said, I wrote the facts as given to me. There was not one word of exaggeration in it. Mm. But he came became very compelled to see it through, and so he continued with the other investigators who went to the house, and he wanted to see it through to, to find some sort of conclusion over the next uh, couple Amazing. of months. Was he the first person to sort of, uh, from outside the community, to come and investigate? Or did he come sort of at the same time as, as Beachy Carroll? And... The first time he went, it was just him and a newspaper photographer. Okay. So he was yeah. the first, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, can I ask you a quick question? So um, we're, we're in the 20s. I, I, Nova Scotia, that's, I know that's where my folks are from too. So it's very rural, very agriculturally mm -hmm. based. I mean, there was mining and farming and fishing, right? Mm -hmm. But did the newspaper article in any way generate curiosity where people were showing up to see what was going on? Yes, absolutely. In fact, Alexander MacDonald had to eventually post a notice in the newspapers and around his property saying that his home and land were not open to sightseers uh, and the curious and so on. And it, part of the reason why my great uncle was so careful just to report the facts was because uh, he wanted to protect the reputations of any innocent people mm -hmm. who were involved mm -hmm. because he knew that people would jump to conclusions. So he's very careful about what he said. I would like to um, to tell you a bit more about this uh, this pamphlet that he wrote. I have a really ancient photocopy of it. It's very hard to track down copies of it today, mm. although you can find people have transposed the text um, on certain blogs and websites online, mm -hmm. so you can find it. And he said in it, quote, I have had what to me was a stupendous experience, which has opened a new page in my life. My mind has been revolutionized. My conception of the unseen has altered somewhat. In other words, I was stone blind and a strange light has given me sight. As a result of this experience, and even though some people will scoff and ridicule, I feel that I must tell the world that, in my humble opinion, the mysterious fires in Alexander MacDonald's house and the mysterious unfastening of his cows were caused by spirits. And I will tell you why I am convinced of this. And that's kind of how he opens his pamphlet. So this was transformative. For him, utterly. My grandmother, as it turns out, was right when she said he was never the same again. 
He had come back from World War I with uh, damaged health from the mustard gas, and after his experiences at the farmstead, his uh, health took a downturn for the worst for for some time, although uh, he he did recover enough to uh, to continue work, and he uh, met Lady, who then became his wife, and lived for some time after that, trying to put his experiences of the uh, MacDonald farmstead behind him. He said at one point that he would one day write a book about it, but he never did. This pamphlet and his newspaper articles are all we have. So, as he says, I will tell you why I'm convinced of this. Let's move on to his story, his personal experiences of what happened in that farmhouse. That was his first visit to the house, where he just wrote the article and just interviewed the witnesses. He did look at the house, and they showed him the blind that had been burned and many other examples of some of the burns that were in the furniture and throughout the house. The McDonald's at this time were still not living in the house. They they stayed and they away. took photos of all this stuff too, did they not? Yep. They brought the newspaper photographer uh, and, or he brought the newspaper photographer with him and you can see some of those photos. Because Riley is always grilling me, oh, are there photos of this? And then I say no. And then he says, your story is crap. <laughs> Damn. People love photos. Pics or it didn't happen. Exactly. Yeah. There's some great photos actually. All right. So he goes for a second visit. This time for the second visit, he goes with Detective Peachy Carroll, and he goes in the middle of a terrible snowstorm. They uh, actually have to spend a night somewhere else because they just can't get to the property. It's so snowy. The next day, they manage to find someone with a sleigh, and they have to literally like help push the horses through the snow to get there. They arrive to this house that had been soaking wet with water and is now filled with ice and snow and wet Mm. (laughs) water. They don't want to light any fires for obvious reasons, because if anything happens, they want to know that it wasn't a spark from their fire. So all they had was this little enclosed camp stove, and they had a really difficult time keeping warm in any way at all. And yet, they willingly spent, uh, Detective Carol and and my great uncle, Whitten, willingly spent two days and two nights in the house just uh, trying to see if they could experience something for themselves. It should be noted that while they were there, Alexander MacDonald was convinced to come and stay there with him as they thought uh, he would be helpful for um, helping explain what was normal and what might be strange. On the first night, nothing happened. All they did was sit there shivering and wondering why they came. (laughs) On the second night, They heard strange new noises, noises that weren't like anything they had heard the night or the day before. They started to hear footsteps walking overhead. My great uncle said he felt a strange energy in the air that he couldn't explain. This weird shift in energy lasted for about 25 minutes or so while all the strange things happened, the noises, the footsteps, and then the three of them are lying on the floor shivering under all the clothes and whatever blankets they can find, trying to sleep, when my great-uncle Witten felt he could only describe as, as if someone had slapped him really hard on his left arm, just above his elbow. He felt this blow, it must be said, through two shirts, an inside coat, a heavy sweater, a fur-lined overcoat, and a horse rug, which were covering him as he lay on the floor. Mm-hmm. He immediately sat up and questioned both Detective Carroll and Alexander MacDonald, who were lying on the floor on either side of him, but far enough away that you couldn't reach out and 
touch each other, and neither of them had moved from the position he had last seen them in. They were both shocked when he asked if they touched him, and it turned out that Carol himself had, a moment before, also felt a weird pressure on his arm, like somebody was pushing at his arm. That was why Detective Carroll wrote the statement that he did. The personal experiences that they had, plus they also did interviews with all the eyewitnesses, including the MacDonald family. It was enough to convince Detective Carroll to state, as he did, that none of these things were caused by human hands. He was convinced. My uncle, uh, my great uncle as well, started to shift his opinion. He said he had never before had any idea that paranormal activity could be real. He had never experienced anything. And remember, this was a man who had fought on the front lines in the First yeah, World mm -hmm. War. And this was, he said, the strangest and most disturbing thing that had ever happened to him. One of the things that really stands out for me, that a person who saw some shit lived on hell on earth. And I'm sure that that altered him as well. But he seems so much more spooked by what occurred here than what he experienced there, you know. Because in terms of atrocity, World War One was way more horrifying than World War Two, right? It's considered the meat grinder. Oh, is that really yeah. what it's called? It's one of the terms That's they used to describe it. a very grim title. Mm. It's, it was, I think both wars were horrific for different mm -hmm. reasons, but I think for the, for the foot soldiers, it was really brutal. The fact that he survived and came back home at all was, uh, is something to me. It's quite remarkable. But he wasn't so freaked out that he didn't want to go back and continue investigating. I think more than anything, being a journalist, he wanted to get at the truth. He wanted to know what it was. Is this spirits? Is this something that's going to have to, as he later said, revolutionize my mind and how I think about the world? Or can this be explained? So mm. when Dr. Walter Franklin Prince, who was a principal researcher, as I mentioned before, uh, with the American Psychical Research Society, an offshoot of the British um, Society for Psychical Research. When he decided to return to the house, there was no question that Harold Whitten was going to go with him. They went uh, on March 9th, 1922. They brought Donald McRitchie, who was a sketch artist for the Halifax Herald, with them. And they all stayed for several days again in this freezing cold house. So while they were there, really nothing was happened. They'd been there for a day or so and, you know, nothing strange at all was happening. Prince's plan was to carry out a series of uh, what he referred to as scientific uh, experiments mm -hmm. and an investigation into this. Now, for the era, these uh, parapsychological tests that he was doing were considered scientific, but today they would not be considered right. scientific because they're not repeatable, they don't have controls, and so on. But for his time, he was doing far more than than some ghost hunters do today. Um, he, he was highly respected, was he not? Like he very was, respected. Yeah. As I said, he was the he was the chief research officer in the American Society. So he was called up from New York and asked if he would investigate this poltergeist phenomenon, or or it wasn't even being called that at that time. It's just what we call it today. So he wanted to do some of these scientific experiments, but nothing was happening. The uh, second day they were there, Prince suggested that. They try an experiment with McRitchie and Whitten. He didn't actually expect anything to happen from it. He didn't expect it to succeed, but he thought it was worth trying as they hadn't been experiencing anything and they might as well. The 
scientific experiment that he wanted to try is something that we today refer to as automatic writing. Okay. Do either of you know this or have you tried it? Mm-hmm. I do not. My favorite horror movie, I think of all time, one of them is The Changeling. And with George C. Scott, and in The Changeling is the most brilliant automatic writing um, psychic moment I think ever been filmed. The actress they got is perfect, and her voice is perfect, and it's just breathtaking. Oh, I, you know, I think I've never seen that film. I'll have to check it out. I think you would love it because it's a ghost story where the story is more important than the manifestation. Yeah, oh, I like is that. it similar to Cocoon with Wilfred Brimley? Don't laugh at Cocoon. You know, I saw Cocoon in the movie theater with like good friends of mine, like punks and really cool people. We all cried. When the old guy brings I hated that, it as a child. When the old guy brings the I, body to the swimming pool because he, he held out. It's like anti-vaxxers. He held out too long and he <laughs> lost his wife. What? Oh dear. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> I remember it being a sad film. I do remember that. <laughs> That's all yeah, I remember. As a kid who, who loved Alien and Aliens and Star Wars and all that, that was a letdown. Well, it's too lightweight. It's a sweet film. It's not a woo film. Young Danny didn't like it. You were too young, I think. We were older than you when it came out. So what, what, is, what is this writing? So automatic writing is in a similar way to you might think of the Ouija board or a pendulum. It provides an outlet for, they say, any spirit who is trying to communicate with an easier time of communicating. So how it works is you take um, blank sheets of paper, you take some pencils. Pencils are uh, generally used, but you can you can use markers and things like that. You hold the pencil lightly in your hand above the paper and you stare off into space, not at the paper, maybe just keeping it gently in your eye line. You just breathe in and out, kind of meditate and just let the pencil start writing. You're not supposed to be thinking about the words. You're not supposed to be paying even attention to what you're writing. You're supposed to just let the pencil write. And you're holding, I know it's going to sound maybe like a dumb question, but you're holding the pencil as you would a pencil. You're not like holding it from mm-hmm. the top or something like that. No, that generally you just hold it as you would a pencil. Right. Okay. People who are practiced at this may have different styles, but basically you can try it on your own. Some people say that perhaps what comes out most of the time Uh, is just from your own subconscious. And that's probable. But there do seem to be times when people are practicing automatic writing, where they fall into a kind of trance state, and it really does seem to be not themselves who are communicating. So that's what Prince wanted to try. It was something that was part of the uh, paranormal investigative toolkit at the time, was try some automatic writing. Remember, they didn't have recorders to do um, EVP <laughs> you know, they, 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 um, they recordings. They couldn't measure the temperature in the room. Not easily. They just held a wet stick, and is it, yeah. you know, does it freeze? It's cold. <laughs> so, and, and and, and would people doing automatic writing know when they were writing? Like, would they be aware or a part of themselves be aware that they are now writing something? And there's- it depends on the practitioner. Um, as you'll hear in a minute, for my great uncle, he was aware. He just didn't always, he wasn't always aware of what he was writing. Dr. Prince first tried with the artist, McRitchie. Nothing happened. He tried with my great uncle, Whitten. Nothing happened. They're like, well, that was a fun way to pass the time. Now let's play cards, which is mostly what they did while they were waiting for things to happen. They tried several times. Nothing happened. They just carried on. The following day, 
again, nothing was happening. So mm -hmm. my great uncle asked several different times, he, he would go up to Dr. Prince and say, let's try again. Let's try this experiment again. He had this uh, real curiosity about it. While at the same time, he said he never for a minute thought that anything of note would happen. Mm -hmm. He just found it an interesting thing to try, but still nothing. But interestingly, later on that same day, March 10th, 1922, Mrs. McDonald, so Janet, and her adopted daughter, Mary Ellen, you'll remember them from the first section, they came out to the house at the request of Prince because that was part of the investigation. Does anything happen when they're not in the house? Do things happen when they are in the house? So Riley, going back to your theory that perhaps somehow it's connected to this adolescent girl. And Alex is not wasn't with them, right, when they were there? Not this yeah. time. Um, he came and went. He was looking after right, the cattle. Right, he wasn't and... sleeping there with them like he did the, the previous time. No, it was just the, uh, the artist, my great uncle, mm -hmm. the reporter, and the um, investigator. So they got to the house. Nothing was happening. They all just were playing cards together. But then just before seven o'clock that night, Dan McGillivray, you'll remember, that neighbor with the nearest telephone, mm -hmm. he came to say that Halifax had called and they wanted Whitten to call them back as soon as possible. So Whitten said, yeah, he'd go with him. He got up, but instead of going out with Dan, he instead walked over into the little side bedroom where Dr. Prince was and asked again to try the automatic writing experiment. He later said he could not account for why he did that instead of leaving as he intended with Dan McGillivray out the front door. He said that he just did it without even thinking. So they set up again for this experiment, cleared a little table, put papers down, got a bunch of pencils. They lit a candle to one side and Whitten sat at the table, his hand loosely holding the pencil above the paper, ready to begin writing. But he stared at the wall. Prince was sitting on the opposite side from where he was staring. And he said, Suddenly, I felt a prickly sensation in the end of some of the fingers, which increased. The hand then became numb. Before I realized what was happening, the pencil began to move. So for the first time... He said it was really slow at first, like it was trying to figure out how the pencil worked. And then it got faster and faster. Soon it was just drawing in circles kind of over and over and over again. You know, like when you're testing a pen to see if it works, kind of like that. Mm -hmm. But it was so pressing so hard on the paper that it actually tore through uh, three sheets of paper. Oh Prince gave him some more paper. It did it again. And then finally on the seventh sheet, it stopped for a moment. It seemed to gain some sort of control of itself. And then it began to write in large, kind of oddly shaped letters. This went on for over two oh, hours. It seemed that my great uncle had gone into some kind of a trance. He said he had no knowledge of what was going to be written next, although part of him was definitely okay. aware that he was writing. In fact, he even called out at one point to uh, Mrs. MacDonald and Mary Ellen and the artist saying, uh, if you want to see something, you'll never see again in your life. You better come in here for a minute. But interestingly enough, when they were in the room, the writing got uh, really erratic and wasn't forming proper sentences and so on. So eventually, my uncle just sent them all out of the room so it would be quiet again with just him and Dr. Prince. But he said that he also, in addition to the numbness that was in his hand, he felt this very weird numbness that seemed to surround his heart. Mm. And he said, the writing was not of my own volition. 
Dr. Prince kept replacing the paper and the pencils, which often snapped, uh, and and sometimes uh, then Whitten would just pick up even the little lead of the pencil that had fallen out just in order to keep writing or whatever was writing through him, you know. And then uh, Prince got Whitten to start asking questions. So Prince would ask the question and then Whitten would re-ask the question. But the spirit or whatever it was that was writing through my great uncle, seemed to jump ahead of them and would sometimes write the question that Prince was about to ask um, and then answer it itself. And remember, this was happening over a two-hour period. So here's some examples of the questions and the answers. Thank God, because I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm just sitting here going, what did it write? What did it write? What did it write? <laughs> I just want to know so bad what was written. I'm, I'm just sitting here like transfixed. Let me guess. <laughs> uh, the pilot for Punky Brewster. Here we go. Here we go. Um, it will be a failure. Yeah. <laughs> no. No, Dan. No. <laughs> All right. So the questions are, you know, pretty much what you would expect. So who set the fires in Alexander McDonald's house? The answer automatically written was spirits with three exclamation marks. But the spirit that was writing through the automatic writing would not answer why were the fires set. It just tapped the page impatiently, like like it wanted them to move on to a different question. It refused to answer why. Mm. So they moved on to more questions. Eventually, one of the questions was, did you slap Harold Whitten on the arm the second night that he and Mr. Carroll stayed in this house? The answer written was, yes. They asked why. The answer written was, because I wanted to show him that the mystery fires were caused by spirits. They asked, who unfastened Alexander McDonald's cows? It answered, I did, with two exclamation marks. And eventually in the session, they did ask the spirit again the reason why it did all these things, and it told them the reason, and it gave them its name. Oh, man. But neither Prince nor Whitten ever divulged that answer yeah. to anyone. <sighs> I will get into perhaps the reason why for that in a bit. But for now, you just need to know they did ask and eventually did get an answer, but they did not divulge it. And nobody there ever did. They didn't hear it because he kicked them out of the room, remember? So it was just Wooden and Prince. I'm so unhappy right now. There's lots to be annoyed (laughs) at about this. It's coming, (laughs) coming later. Do you want to know the rest of the story of the fire spook of Caledonia Mills? Yes? No? Shut up! You shut up! Well then, to hear the exciting conclusion, tune in next week for part two of this unforgettable episode of... The Weird!